0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Fishing for Problems, a Spanning Boundaries podcast. For this show, I'm joined by Dr. David Stovall. Dave is professor of African-American studies in criminology, law, and justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His scholarship investigates three areas. One, critical race theory. Two, the relationship between housing and education. And three, the intersection of race, place, and school. In an attempt to bring theory to action, he worked with community organizations and schools to address issues of equity, justice, and abolishing the school-prison nexus. During our conversation, Dave and I discussed critical race theory, the intersection of housing and education, and charter schools, although we didn't get to spend too much time talking about charters. I have my opinions about charters. I taught sixth grade math at a charter school and have done extensive reading, both theoretical and empirical, on the impact of charters. On the traditional public schooling system, so I feel reasonably well equipped to critique them, but I also believe that they can serve an important purpose in the K-12 space. I worked with an incredible group of educators and school leaders during my time at KIPP, the charter org I taught at. We did good work, and I know a lot of good people still working in the charter world. Yet, when I was at KIPP, I saw and experienced school and regional practices that I found to be highly problematic things that I did not agree with. And if you're presenting yourself as a superior alternative to the public schooling system, you should expect, and in my opinion, welcome a higher level of scrutiny. All that is to say that it's complex and there's an opportunity to discuss the strengths and weaknesses of charters, yet because of strong opinions on both sides, it's not always possible to have a civil conversation about the topic. Before getting started, I asked Dave a question about two black academics, Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter. I contextualize the question, so I hope that explains why I'm asking it. I added a few thoughts after the podcast, so feel free to listen to those. I personally am not trying to critique Glenn and John, but it's clear that Dave has strong opinions about their work and their perspectives. As a white man attempting to understand the experiences of black and brown populations, I strongly believe that it's necessary to absorb as many perspectives as I can. I listened to The Glenn Lowry Show. I find his perspective to be helpful, but his thoughts on race relations in the U.S. are in tension with Dave's work and the scholarship of many others whose work I value. Dave's response was informative for me. I imagine that Glenn and John would strongly object to his evaluation of their work, but it served to broaden my understanding of the conflict between the two parties. If you want to hear more, listen to the postscript. Otherwise, enjoy the conversation. I am incredibly excited to welcome uh, David Stovall to the Fishing for Problems podcast. Uh, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Man, thanks so much
1: for having me. Truly appreciate it.
0: So uh, before getting into uh, the nitty gritty, uh, can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're at, uh,
1: what your research focuses on, uh, all that good stuff? Yeah, no problem. Um, Again, I'm Dave Stovall. I am at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I am born and raised here in Chicago. And my uh, the work I look at is uh, the relationship between housing and education, uh, the relationship between schools and community. And I work with a group of folks in the abolition of the school prison nexus. And that's just having the the logics of the school and the prison be the same thing.
0: Thanks, and there's so much to talk about today. I'm a bit torn or was a bit torn about where to focus the conversation. So, you know, as you said, you've written eloquently about the relationship between housing and education. I wanna talk about that and some of its historical roots. I also wanna to try to talk about COVID the next year in the American schooling system. What you see as the pros and cons of an incoming Biden administration, specifically around housing. And education, uh, and also the past, present, and future of critical race theory. And I wanna try to frame the conversation as much as possible as that past, present, future. One of the many benefits I see in critical race theory is that it places historical context at the center of its analysis of education, housing, employment, all that stuff. So I wanna think about how we ended up, where we are, where we are, and where we might be going. Um, So to start off, you write, and I quote, as some have relied on a post-racial myth to argue racial racial progress, there is an underpinning that continues to articulate an alternative reality imbued in rationales around containment and disinvestment in education, employment, housing, land rights, healthcare, food security, voting rights, and immigration, end quote. So that's from uh, your paper, Out of Adolescence. It was published in 2016. I'm guessing it was published, or it was written in 2015. Obama was president at the time, so we didn't have the racial and ethnic overt dog whistling of the last four years. And as someone who is reasonably well steeped in critical theory, I understand how this comment was made. It was relevant five years ago. Yet to someone who might not be as well versed, maybe someone who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump. This seems like something that was much more likely to have been written in the last year or two. So Mm -hmm. why did you see it this way in 2015? Uh, how do you feel like this quote has aged? So what have the last four years looked like? And then finally, what do you see as progress looking like moving forward under a Biden administration? And before responding, um, education, employment, housing, et cetera, all those are deeply intertwined. Yet as an education-focused focused podcast, I want to try to keep it as much in the K-12 field as we can.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think I actually use this a quote from a good friend of mine here in Chicago, and he always says that... We need to understand that housing is an education issue and education is a housing issue, right? And he always and that's just his his way of connecting the things. But to your earlier question about the quote from the Out of Adolescence article, the thing that I think critical race theory puts on the table that people have such a tough time grappling with is the idea that the United States is founded on Slavery, genocide, and wrongful land appropriation, right? So that is the operating premise, right? So when scholars in critical race theory were looking at it from the legal perspective, and Derek Bell was writing in the in the actually the early 70s about this, he was just taking from what folks were saying 40 years before him, right? I mean, and we can even take it back to David Walker's appeal of 1823. Right, this idea that this is a land forged in human bondage, the elimination of another group of people, or the attempted elimination of a, another group of people, and then wrongful appropriation of their land. Right. So this, if we can't grapple with this then where can we go? Right. So the the thing is always, you know, when people say, well, when can we get past race? We haven't gotten to race. Right. And I think that's the (laughs) that's the thing that I think is critically important to take into account. So this idea of individual success does not mean collective progress when we think about the Obama presidency. Right. So, you know, him individually being popular with a large group of folks in the United States, does not mean that black people are free. Right. So, in fact, it means that in what we saw with this kind of Trump election was that there's a deeper backlash because there's the illusion that black folks have made too much, too much progress. Right now, we know that that's not the case, but all of this puts these contradictions in play. Right. So when we talk about the prison industrial complex, when we talk about the school prison nexus and for the K-12 educators, I mean, this idea that you have more people who are current, more black folks who are currently incarcerated than were listed as chattel slavery in 1850. Right. I mean, that 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 understanding now needs to be put in context and. We also, and you know, under the Obama administration, when you talk about that's the most deportations that have ever happened under any president, right? So, this thing around it, and it's not a lot of times people, when they hear this critique, they think about it as a personal attack on Obama. And it's not that. It's literally understanding Barack Obama's service to a land that is founded on slavery, genocide. And wrongful land appropriation, and I think it's not. And a lot of times, people hear this and they say, "Well, aren't you belagering the point?" It's like, no, we're not, because in critical race theory, we're saying that there has been a refusal in the United States to even engage this. And when people actually start to engage it and grapple with it, there's this visceral reaction, and. The reason that there's a visceral reaction is because we lie too much to folks in their K-12 education experience. Right. So that that thing around. So what does it mean to critical race theory to me is a process and practice of unearthing the lie. Right. And when we unearth that lie, what lies beneath is ugly as shit. I'm, I don't know if we can curse on this, but I we got to be we just got to be. Really clear about that. And when we talk about looking forward in the future and and what the Biden administration can hold, I mean, I think there's this thing about Biden. Right. I, I always see Biden as a type who just keeps the trains running. Right. It's not it will not be what the last four years were. That's definitely. But I think that's the only improvement. Right. The only improvement is that it will not be what the last four years were. You won't just see the absurdity of Someone talking in front of a camera and having just people blatantly lie in front of uh, impress, impress briefings or what have you. You won't see that. We won't see that. But when we talk about issues that are hitting folks like relationships with law enforcement in terms of what those relationships have been in communities of color, in large cities, in suburbs and even in rural areas, that won't necessarily shift because Biden is pro cop. Right. So I think those things are, get into the fold. And I'm still unclear around how Biden sees choice. Now, he supported charter schools in the past. So, this understanding of how he will engage the charter phenomenon, how will he engage choice, I think will be on par with what Obama did in terms of kind of the race to the top. I don't see any substantive shifts in terms of any kind of equitable processes that he will engage in, uh, in education. I mean, and and to your listeners, it's not me trying to be, uh, just the, uh, the, the perpetual, um, what do you call it? Uh, pessimist. But at the same time, I don't, I don't have a, a, I don't have a lot of expectations because of his, prior record, right? Biden is about making deals, right? Biden's thing is, you know, what best demonstrates or shows some type of bipartisan agreement. And when you operate from that perspective, it doesn't do folks who have experienced suffering too well, right? And I think it's it's important to have that perspective of him. I know it won't be like the last four years, but at the same time, I don't have these high expectations of his administration.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I, I want to save charters for the second half of the conversation uh, mm-hmm. because uh, I do want to get to that. You know, one thing that you reminded me personally of is I remember having conversations in uh in know November, December of twenty was that twenty nineteen? Feels like a million years ago. Saying how there's no way I was going to vote for Biden. I am not a Trump supporter, but no way I was going to vote for Biden if he got the uh, nomination. And he got the nomination, and I'm having arguments with my sister about how she needs to vote for Biden and not sit out the election <laughs> because somebody like Bernie. Uh, and uh, and so I share I share a lot of your concerns. Uh, there's so there was something that you said there. Uh, there's a belief that sort of speaking bad things about America that, you know, digging deeper, that uncovering all that stuff that you said is ugly as shit, uh, that making race explicit in policy will make people hate America, that if you do these things, you teach these ideas to youth, that they're going to want to grow up burning down the country, like total anarchy. (laughs) despite, Despite everything that I've read about white supremacy, about whiteness, critical race theory, critiques of capitalism, critiques of neoliberalism, this is just a belief that I simply do not understand. The idea that being critical of America's history makes one hate America. <laughs> I've, 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 tried, I've tried so hard to wrap my head around it and I just am not sure that I get it. So why is making race more explicit? Uh, not an attempt, as you say, to exacerbate
1: race relations and inequality. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that people wrestle with and you know, if we think about it and it's really around what does it mean to believe a lie, right, and a lie that's layered. So this idea around, so we hear things like American ideals, right? You know, people, and every time that's that's that said, people go into life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and I go to slavery, genocide, wrongful land appropriation, like well, that. So that thing around, it's not this disparaging right it's literally saying let's take into account that this has happened and to what extent have we even lived in recognition of this thing happening and I think when we go to that people get caught up in the individual attacks and that's a big thing around quote-unquote individual liberties right everybody thinks it's attack on their it's an attack on their personhood but it's literally saying we need to understand that structures have been built on this premise. Right. And it's not about this individualized hatred of folks, but it's saying we need to be clear about where we are. And if we're clear about where we are, we can do more things to transform the reality. Right. And I think and it's literally based off the premise, the more we know, the more we can do. Right. A lot of times people feel like when you engage in critique, the result, the end result is this paralysis. Right. You get frozen into not doing anything when actually you can use critique pedagogically to say, "Okay, this is happening. What are you willing to do? Right. And a lot of times people don't know necessarily know where to start. But this thing around critique for me and something like critical race theory is literally saying, what does it mean to move to action? So I really. I really resonated with somebody named Eric Yamamoto. And Eric Yamamoto, wrote. uh, he coined the the concept of critical race praxis, right, and this idea of, look, we need to spend less time with this abstract theory, and what does this mean in real time for folks who are experiencing this suffering under white supremacy? And now, what are you willing to do, right? So how do we understand it conceptually? How do we understand it materially? How do we understand it performatively? How do we understand it reflexively, right? So all these things around the idea, the, the the resources we need for the idea in terms of the material and the performative in terms of what we actually do in classrooms, and then the reflexive—you know, our our capacity to reflect and say, "This went well. This didn't. Here's what we're willing to do to improve it." And I think we can't get past this because, or we can't get to it, I should say, because. There's such a disruption when white folks have to understand that the world they have come to know does not exist for other people in the same space that they're in. Right? I think that's the most difficult thing, because a lot of times when people come to some form of consciousness, the first thing they say is, well, what do you mean it's like this? Like, I, I never knew. And it's like, well, here's the thing. You've got to take this into account if you do not know. The next question is, why don't you know? And what has been kept from you, right? And I, I think because we're asking real curricular and pedagogical questions there, right? What has been kept from you and why has it been kept from you, right? And that, that that I think that's the worry that people have. And it doesn't have to be a worry as much as saying, okay, this thing has happened. All right, now we live in recognition of this thing happening. And we see the vestiges of this thing when we talk about slavery, genocide and wrongful land appropriation. And now now we say, okay, well, here's what we're willing to do. Here's what we're willing to do in our particular sphere to contest that reality around the normalcy of slavery, genocide and wrongful land appropriation. I think that's the thing when people have to come to grips with that. They don't necessarily know what to do because nowhere in their educational experience, or their schooling experience, I should say, that someone has been willing to talk about this, right? And I, I think that's that's where that fear sets in. We haven't really, you know, it's, it's to the extent that we've believed this mythology in the face of something else that's happening.
0: Yeah, it makes me think a little bit about The Matrix uh, and Neo and uh Perfect example. And uh, just before, uh, before actually uh, being um, being freed, just the idea that something's not right. You know that something else is lingering, and the fact that we haven't even had a truth and reconciliation uh, commission uh, regarding this. Another comment I had. I, I, I feel like there's an inverse relationship between, uh, the amount of time you spend using words like liberty and freedom and your actual commitment to, uh, <laughs> right. to those ideals. Yeah.
1: Right.
0: Right. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about housing, uh, because, uh, you have a, you have a ni- 2019 paper with, I think it's Dr. Ann Avilas. Did I pronounce mm-hmm. her name correctly? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's titled When Class Explanations Don't Cut It, Spectres of Race, Housing Instability and Education Policy. And in it, you reference a 2017 paper by M.H. Horton stating that 3.5 million young people experience homelessness over a recent 12-month period. And of those 3.5 million, Black youth had an 83% higher risk of homelessness. So you also reference some higher ed housing statistics. So can you just talk a little bit about how you see the relationship between housing and education?
1: Again, it goes back to the earlier quote. And it's some basic things. So if we even think about real estate markets. One of the number well, I should say one of the number one, but the number one determinant. So the National Realtors Association puts out a report every year. The number one determinant to this day and for the last 70 years, the number one determinant for a family purchasing a home is the school it's in proximity to. Right. So that basic analysis always connects schooling and housing. Now, the piece is when we look at particular municipalities, they figured out ways to fund those particular schools. So like here in Illinois, we have a number of equations around funding. But if you live in a suburb, you can vote or you can mobilize to vote around leveraging the taxes collected for that district to go to education. So when you are able to do this, and again, you can do this every year to every two years, right? So there's always this flood of money coming through. So when you are able to do this, you can actually have schools that have roving stock quotes, that have radio stations, that have a campus, right, with all these kind of, with with moats in it, right? And this is a public school, right? And then you got a school where I'm at here on the south side of Chicago that doesn't have a library. Right. So and these are both public schools. And when we look at the neighborhoods that are in that where those schools are housed, now we see this particular relationship. Because the other thing that I think in cities that folks don't talk enough about is what my colleague Pauline Littman always refers to as disinvestment. So we need to look at what resources have actually been removed from school spaces. Right. And when we look at cities, especially large cities like where I'm at here in Chicago and where you are in Portland. This idea of budgets being moral documents. Budgets are an articulation of where the priority of the city is. Right. So it's not this thing around the austerity. It's literally where the city decides to spend its dollars. And now when we start to think about that, all you have to do, if you looked at the more affluent areas of Portland, if you look at the more affluent areas of Chicago, the schools are going to look a particular way. The public schools will look a particular way. When you look at spaces that have experienced disinvestment, that are largely black and Latinx, that are largely low income or working class, those schools are going to look a particular way. Right. And what we the thing that's missing from that analysis is we of, often just think of those schools not having resources, in opposed to those resources being reappropriated mm-hmm. to other places, right? So that relationship between school and housing, and a good friend of mine says is, and I, I like how he frames this. He always says, "Then this is Larry Park, who's at the University of Utah." He always says, "When we look at public schools, we're not necessarily talking about." a full-on public school system. We need to understand schools as subsidized schools. So when we see that suburban school that's well-funded, that has all the amenities and resources, that's a subsidized school, right? Because that municipality has figured out how to subsidize that particular institution and actually get it the resources that it needs. I think that... Kind of relation. These relationships are critical for us to understand that intimate relationship between housing and education.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, you might see somebody counter that by saying that, well, those schools that you're referring to in the suburbs, they're basically de facto private schools and uh, mm-hmm. families are paying for them. Uh, right. So what's the problem? You know, they're just paying more. But uh, when right. you look at a uh, percentage of property taxes that are going to those schools, uh, you know, black folks in low income communities are spending much, uh, much higher percentage of their income on uh, those property taxes
1: than are uh, those wealthier folks in the suburbs. To your point, I mean, like this said, there's a, a there's a suburb here in Chicago called Homewood and they created a tax equation where you were taxed. It gets exactly to your point where you were taxed per square foot of your house. Right. So now. So if you think about the square footage of your house, you could decide on how much you would be taxed per square foot of your house. And then that would go straight. To education. Right. So, again, where people in historically disinvested areas are paying more proportionately, you even see how how the equation benefits someone with a bigger house. Right. So this thing around really taking this into account and looking at it in terms of because a lot of times, you know, K-12 educators, you know, folks are trying to get through the day to day and getting into the weeds of this is often a task, but at the same time we can see directly what's connected to right it's just in terms of what resources are available to particular schools.
0: So let's talk a little bit about policy in this realm uh, and an action that we could take. So you state that housing policy similar to homeless education policy known as McKinney Vento, does not explicitly reference the disproportionate representation of Black and Latin students amongst the populations of individuals experiencing housing instability. So basically, Black and brown populations experience more homelessness, yet homelessness policy does not explicitly address this disparity. And you say this is a problem, and I don't want to preempt an answer, but I do want to pay homage to a quote in um, one of your papers from Justice, the 2019 paper from Justice Sonia Sotomayor. In her dissenting opinion, I think it's in Shoot versus Bam, I'm mm. probably... Botch that. But she writes in quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race, end quote. So I haven't read a whole lot of her opinions. I feel like I need to, mm. uh, but I want to use that to frame your response. And I also think it builds upon, you know, the, the point, uh, that I made around not being able to wrap my head around the fact that we just are unable to talk about these things. So why is it a problem that we are not explicitly referencing race, uh, in Uh, housing policy or in education policy also.
1: Yeah. And I think when we look about housing and we could drop healthcare employment in that space, because when we start to recognize how folks are disproportionately affected in relationship to race and ethnicity, now you've actually, and Judge uh, Sotomayor actually says this, right? Once you start to admit this, the fear is that you have now admitted to something that you could be indicted for. Right. So this thing around. So once you so once you cop to saying that these things are real, now you have to deal with the consequences. Right. And I think that's always the thing. That's always the back and forth. This idea of we won't say that certain groups are disproportionately affected because now when we look at the history, we're going to see what policy decisions were literally made to exclude certain people from access to resources, right? And there's no way around that. And I think this, when we look at education policy, we look at housing policy, this goes all the way back to redlining, restrictive covenants, where certain Color of of Law is is a great book, yeah. Exactly, where people could only live in certain places. So in Chicago, we had an area called the Black Belt, right? Eight square miles. Until 1947, when Lorraine Hansberry's father sued- the city of Chicago and went all the way to the Supreme Court, you couldn't buy property outside of that area. Right. So this thing around really thinking about how people were locked out of space. You know, Minnie Thompson, full of love, wrote an excellent book about Pittsburgh. that talks about this in terms of and she refers to it as root shock. Right. This idea of the roots have been of a plant often get shocked by all these stimuli and it refuses to grow. So this same, we can think about gentrification or uneven development in the same way, right? Certain communities are limited and contained and they're not allowed to move. So when we think about this and the reason why people are, and this goes to college admissions, right? So when people think about the reason why we don't name race, because we now have to cop to what has historically been done to folks And now we have to think about what is redress for the vestiges of this past discrimination. And it was a mistake even that Roberts made in the case around uh, the Voting Rights Act. Right. His understanding was things have improved to where black folks don't have to worry about voter discrimination. And, you know, the response was, what planet do you live on, bro? What are we talking about? And how do you make what factual evidence do you bring to the table besides an eye test that says, OK, since we got a black president, y'all shouldn't be complaining about this anymore and saying, well, what does it mean to the folks who have perpetually been on the margins and why do we actually make a rationale for them being there that blames them in terms of how neoliberalism operates, right? So if everything is based on the individual, if you're not doing something, then it's your fault, totally ignoring the structural phenomenon of race and racism, right? So now I think these things around people are just trying to back away from an indictment, right? It's literally because now once we start to unearth this, you're going to see What this means historically. And now people are worried about what constitutes that payment. I mean, this is the argument around reparations, right? You people won't start to engage the structural conversation because once you start to unearth those things, now you see that there is there's a heavy price to pay. And now what, const- what constitutes restitution, right? And I think that's the thing that folks worry so much about is and they use these other rationales like neoliberal ideology, individualism to mask what is actually happening.
0: You use the word indictment. And I think, you know, there's a criminal indictment, but there's also moral indictment. And uh, it makes me think about nimbyism a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, uh, I, Personally, I benefited from this. I grew up in a wealthy neighborhood in San Francisco. I referenced that book, Color of Law. Uh, I didn't know about redlining, uh, until, uh, I was an adult and didn't know how, especially in a place like San Francisco where housing prices have just gone through the roof and people have accumulated this massive wealth, um, that was, uh, that was really restricted to, to white folks in, uh, mm. in that city. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about critical race theory. Uh, Not that we haven't been talking about it, but let's sort of make it front and center. Um, And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. So it seems to me that critical race theory has taken a bit of a beating in the public sphere over the last few months. uh, Yeah. And I'm not sure how many people outside of academia had even heard of critical race theory prior to Trump elevating the concept to the national consciousness. But it also seems like it's coming from multiple angles. So it's coming from Trump, it's coming from the right, but also from the left in this election postmortem, specifically around, you know, congressional and senatorial candidates losing uh, losing their seats, you know, using a policy such as defunding the police as a justification for losing one of their races. And mm-hmm. just recently, President Obama said that the left should be cautious about using uh, defund the police as a policy position. And I'm not I'm not directly trying to equate defund the police with critical race theory, the two are no doubt connected, but I'm curious sort of how you see these critiques and the recent elevation of CRT into the national
1: conversation. Well, I think and thank you for providing those layers because I think it's important to put the layers there because there's actually... An internal critique, and then there's a couple of external critiques. So the the broader external critique kind of comes from the Trump administration, what we saw in terms of his business office actually putting forward that anybody who uses federal funding, you know, if they're using critical race theory, if they're talking about all white people are racist or they encourage the hatement, the, the hating of America, then their funds will be cut. And folks have actually been scared around this. But what critical race theory puts forward is that. Racism is endemic to life in the United States. This idea of, and it's foundational to the policies that have uh, ruled the United States. So, if we think about the three fifths clause of the Constitution that did not allow African descended people to vote because they were counted as three fifths of a human being, when we look at the uh, state of South Carolina that had a, lo- a number of black landowners, it was particularly a strategy for them not to vote. When we think about the Electoral College, the Electoral College was a justification to make sure that slaveholding states had equitable representation in the choosing of the president. It was a compromise from the Constitutional Convention of 1789. So now when we start to think about these things and we look at things like the 13th Amendment and the Convenience Clause of the 13th Amendment, right? So it says, Slavery is thereby abolished except for punishment for a crime. Right. So this thing around. So the question that I would always ask my high schoolers is, okay, we live in the United States. Where does slavery still exist? Right. And now we start to say, well, look, according to the Constitution, slavery still exists where people are contained for punishment for a crime. That's our prison industrial complex. Right. So critical race theory is saying these ideas are foundational, right? So the three fifths clause, the electoral college, the 13th, 14th and 15th amendment. And now when we start to pay attention to this, what does it mean to live in a place where is always justifying this particular behavior in terms of how folks are treated in terms of housing, education, healthcare, employment, immigration and the like? Right. And then we can even throw in the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1790. Right. This idea of white persons born in the United States were automatically declared citizens. Right. So this thing around even white folks had a way to delineate themselves from other folks who were coming uh, after them. Right. So this this idea of critical race theory is literally saying and this it comes from a critique of another critique. Right. So critical race theory is a critique of something referred to as critical legal studies, which was an analysis of the legal system that said the legal system is a class based system. Derek Bell wrote a book called Race, Racism and American Law, critiquing critical legal studies, talking about the criminal le- the legal system in the United States is not just a class based system, but it is a race and gendered based system, right, in terms of disadvantaging people uh, according to their race, class, and gender. So there were a couple of conferences where his students and other folks who were reading Derrick Bell came together. So it's interesting. Critical race theory as the name, no one is actually really clear about where it came from except for it came out of this conference in 1989 in Madison, right? So critical race theory was on a sheet of paper and everybody was like, okay, that's it. Right. But it was literally around reading Derek Bell's work and then other folks talking about where the other places that we see racism exist and go on, un- go literally untouched. And then to connect it to. Past writings that were also talking about race, so thinking about Lucy Parsons, W.B. Du Bois, folks like uh, Paulie Murray. Right. Who were talking about the structural components of race. And that's another thing around critical race theory. Racism cannot be reduced to individualized acts of bigotry. That is only one part of racism. Racism should always be understood as a structural component. Right. So white supremacy operates structurally. And when we think about those structures, look no further. Than you know, education, entertainment, economics, labor, law, religion, sex, gender, politics, right? So this idea of racism, white supremacy operating structurally, right? Systemically. And now we see in things like housing and education and law enforcement how these systemic understandings are affecting folks. So all that to say, when we talk about critical race theory, and the reason why it's getting that's and so now that's where it comes from. Now, the critique is this is just te- teaching folks to hate America. And then there's another critique that says that well, critical race theory focuses on the stories of people who have experienced these things. And Derrick Bell talked about this as you know being like testimony in a courtroom or in a deposition, the stories being the evidence. So there's an, an internal cre- critique from the left that says that. CRT focuses too much on the story. There's a critique from the right that says it's teaching folks to hate America. And what folks like myself who engage in critical race theorists and will consider ourselves critical race theorists are saying is that we're missing the point. And we have to return to what this country is founded on and where we see the vestiges of that foundation. Right. And I think that that becomes the space that I operate from when I start to think about education and the difference between education and schooling. Right. So critical race theory came out as an insurgent scholarship. Right. It was literally pushing back against this rhetoric that it's really about class. It's like, No, we cannot ignore race when we're talking about the legal system in the United States. It's impossible to do that. So now. That critique is spread out in terms of folks like Brian Brayboy, who's writing about tribal crit, folks like Thea Berry, who's writing about black feminist crit, or what people refer to as critical race feminism. There are folks who are doing Asian crit, like Rob Taranishi, and then folks who are doing critical race theory in education, really championed and first brought to the field of education by Gloria Ladson-Billings and Bill Tate. So... Really kind of thinking about all those spaces. And again, it's, it's good that, that we're on a podcast because your sound bites could necessarily get all this in in terms of uh, talking about CRT. But I think that's the thing that folks struggle with the most. The idea that when we start to talk about the foundations, of this country, we can actually locate them. It's not just our phyric conversation, right? It's evidentiary. Like right? We can literally locate where this has happened. And even though systems are made up of individuals, those systems over the years perpetuate themselves and then start to develop assumptions. Are you familiar with Megan Bang's work at all? Yep. In yeah. fact, I, yeah. I, I was just, just had a conversation with her.
0: I lost you there for a second. You just you just had a conversation yeah, I think, with her? I think right. Yeah, I just had a conversation with her a couple months ago. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I, I love her work. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I heard in there, this idea of stories as evidence, it makes me think about uh, qualitative research and the sort of elevation of quantitative research over qualitative research. And so much research in the K-12 space right now is qualitative and it's talking about stories and it's using those stories uh, to help inform folks uh, who maybe aren't experiencing some of these things about the experiences of black and brown and gay and trans and all, all those groups. So uh the following is a, a question related to critical race theory. It's something that's constantly on my mind and I hope it lands. And if it doesn't, we can always just edit, edit it out. Um, and it's something that I struggle with and it's founded in my attempt to keep an open mind, to try to listen to all perspectives, because that's what critical race theory suggests that I do as a white man. Uh, I, I think that my identity is much more complex than my external appearance and you know, adjudicating that is not what we're here to do, but I do move through the world as a white man. I've accrued the advantages of that uh, appearance. I believe that because I have experienced those benefits. Um, as a white man, I read and listen to individuals who don't look like me uh, to try to learn about their experiences, what it's like to grow up black, brown, woman, gay, trans. And most of the reading and listening that I do is to folks who are proponents of critical race theory, generally folks whose positions I strongly align with, folks on the proverbial left, but I also try to listen to black and brown academics and writers who dispute the value of critical race theory in order to broaden my perspective. Um, one person is Glenn Lowry. Um, yeah, Glenn is at Brown University. He frequently talks with John McWhorter, uh, you know, Coleman Hughes has been a guest on there. And Glenn and John are often highly critical of Ibram Kendi, ta Coates and others. Glenn's a smart guy. He's highly accomplished. So. What is it that he doesn't get about critical race theory? Or maybe that's not even the right question. Like, maybe the right
1: question is, why are his
0: criticisms misguided?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, I, I, and back to your question, right? It's what does he refute, right? What, what does he refuse to get despite his own living, right? And I think that's always important when we talk about, because it's, it's one thing to have folks who disagree, right? But then it's another thing for folks to refute their own humanity. Right. So I always when I see when I think about John McWhorter, I think about and when I see Glenn Lowry, I'm always saying, well, how have they been advantaged by refuting the reality of folks who look like them? Right. And people refer to it as exceptionalism or sometimes we'd even hear it in language in the 40s and 50s about the magical Negro. Right. This idea around who has been accepted by white world. And now starts to believe that acceptance to make them exceptional to black people, right? So when I when I see Lowry, when I see McWhorter, and I'm hearing them talk, I'm always saying, "Well, who is sponsoring them, right?" So you think about the Hoover Institute, you think about the Manhattan Institute, you know, all these kind of conservative think tanks that now lift up their work as. Fact, right? This idea. I mean, I remember hearing John McWhorter once talk about being post-racial, and I'm and almost before breaking the television, I'm almost saying to myself, "Wait, how?" But I had to reflect on it and say, "Well, what type of reality does he live in? And more importantly, does he choose to ignore the reality of folks like him? Right? This idea of racism lessening." Right. And for me, it was always, well, if racism is lessened, why do we have more black folks in prison? (laughs) Like, I mean, this this these kind of very basic answers and no theoretical construct is beyond critique. Right. So I'm not I don't have a beef with them about critiquing critical race theory. That's not the issue. The issue is when they begin to ascribe how they are living to the realities of black folks who have not been afforded those same opportunities, then we start to have problems, right? And I think that's where I go away from the McWaters and the Lowry's of the world and say, well, look, what are we actually talking about here? And why does it benefit them to say, we need to stop talking about race? Right. So, because now they can be used as the leverage point by whatever forces of power to now say, see, this is the problem. You all just need to get over it. And to McWhorter and Larry, I always say, well, look, how can we get over something that we've never gotten to? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's just impossible. Right. And I don't, and they would have a bunch of, they would have a bunch of retort for me. But at the same time, I'm saying, look, You know, we have to at minimum, just like you just like you prefaced your life as a white person in this world and how you're actually trying to move in the world. That's something that they are refusing to do. Right. To say, look, I have to understand that there are the myriad experiences of black folks, that there are the myriad experiences that are deeply connected to exclusion, marginalization and containment by way of policy and that exclusion being normalized, right? And, and that's to me, and again, this is David Stovall talking, but to me, that's not a difficult thing to do when we see the realities of the world. The question that I would have for the Lowry's and the, and the McWaters of the world is to what, what lens are they operating from? And then how are they individually advantaged by engaging this? Because Let's keep it let's keep it a hundred, right? McWhorter and Lowry are very wealthy men, right? and they they have actually been afforded that wealth because they have abjectly refuted the realities of black folks, right? So this thing around really thinking about that and really bringing it down to this common denominator of now asking, what is this? where are they pulling from to actually? make this argument that things that we need to stop complaining and that things have actually improved. And the question I always have is, for whom? And under what terms and conditions?
0: Yeah, and I appreciate that response. I mean, I'm not here to personally criticize either of those uh, either of those guys. Uh, but um, it is something that's, that's on my mind as I try to, you know, navigate these waters. And uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's incredibly helpful uh, to hear you talk through that. So We've got about 10 minutes left, and I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about charters. Uh, I imagine we won't get too far, but um, you've written a lot about this. Uh, You have a 2017 book titled 21st Century Jim Crow Schools, The Impact of Charters on Public Education, and that provides an alternative perspective on the topic. I don't think we need to get into the history of charters. We don't have the time for it anyways. Um, but in a, a 2019, and you also talk about that in a 2019 interview with Amanda Parker, so I can always link it in the show notes. Um, You have strong opinions about charters. I also have strong opinions. I taught at a KIPP school, which is, uh, for those who don't know, is a charter school in the Bay Area for two and a half years. And that might not seem like too long of a time, but was working 100 plus hour weeks, you know, 42, 44 weeks a year, but I was also, I was getting intensive coaching support, learning alongside a group of highly dedicated and collaborative teachers and was growing leaps and bounds as a, as a practitioner. But I also feel like I had the privilege of working at what I thought was, and still do think was a relatively good charter school in uh, the Bay area. There were maybe 10 to 12 tips. And my impression was that one of them or that two of them were good, um, ours, and then another one. So most of them weren't. And I would guess that that comment's probably going to be met with some strong criticism from uh, that network. Uh, this info was all sort of secondhand. I was just in my world. I might be wrong about that. But that was a general message that I received. Um, at the school that I taught at, we didn't use the more punitive shaming techniques that uh, other tip schools use. So I was proud of that. We championed a restorative justice approach to relationship building. And, you know, of course, restorative justice has its own baggage that we don't need to talk about here. Um, I also only think that one student exited during my tenure there. Uh, so that was positive. Um, we also, we dealt with some tragic events and we used, you know, that restorative justice framework to get through it. Um, and so that experience was profound for me, um, but it wasn't sustainable and I had to leave. Um, during my time when I was there, I began to develop strong beliefs about the benefits and harms of my classroom instruction and the broader charter school movement in the years since with the benefit of some space And lots of reading. Uh, I think those beliefs have gained some much needed depth, but I live that world and I find the debate over charters to be super interesting. Um, so you write uh, about charters in Chicago and on the first page of uh, your chapter in that book, you write that central to the vision of corporate education reform. And that's what most charters have become a tool for corporate reform. Are these public private partnerships? You put that in quotes and also choice, in quotes, um, which you call political devices that provide the illusion that students, parents, and families can better access options and outcomes away from traditional uh, public charter, uh, public schools. You also write later that charter management organizations, state agencies, central offices use sophisticated marketing tools to solicit buy-in from parents and stir up what you call a politics of desperation. So... It was a lot there. But that last piece, that opening to your paragraph, what do you mean by uh, a politics of desperation? What do you mean by putting in quotes, public private partnerships and this
1: illusion of choice? Definitely. And let me because I think talking about the politics of desperation will put those other things in context. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, for your listeners, you know, if folks, you think about a historically under-resourced school, right? So you don't have toilet paper, you don't have soap, you don't have a library, you don't have books, everybody's um, you know, you had this highly securitized space, everybody's walking through metal detectors wearing uniforms, you got all these draconian policies. You look at this thing and you are in this thing and you say, Well, man, it's not just the young folks who are in this particular situation. But some of them, their parents went here. Right. And their parents have had the same experiences as their sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, grandkids. And now somebody comes right behind this and they got this new thing. Right. And the new thing, you know, there was a shiny new building. We had this one spot here in Chicago, building looked like an eagle, right? So you got this building looks like an eagle. You know, you got, you know, think about it. you're in fifth grade, you know, you drive, you, you ride in your bike and you ride past this thing and it looks like an eagle. And you say, Man, hey, look, where are you going to school next year? I'm going there, right? So, you know, you go in. You know, they got, and let's say if it's in a Latinx neighborhood, and I'll use this as an example because it's actually happened, right? Going to the spot, you know, they got a mariachi band playing, you know, all of the young folks uh, dressed up like they are in school. They use the same uniforms as the, as, uh, the schools in Mexico City. You know, they got the whole, everything together. You know, they look in the mariachi band is playing, and then you got little ones taking you on a tour of the school, right? And you're saying to yourself, all right, well, damn. You know, I got this school that I went to that was under resourced when I went there. And now my kid is there. And now I got this new thing. And this new thing, you know, they're giving away laptops, they're giving away iPads in the orientation. You're like, well, shit. All right, well, look, this, this and what that charter organization says is look, you've had 40 years of shit. Here's something new. Now, we don't know necessarily what it is, but it can't be worse than what you already have. Right. So what it what it does, it plays on the desperation of those families who have had that 40 years of shit. Now, what they don't tell you is if you are a Latinx family, as soon as your young person walks through the door, they can no longer speak Spanish. Right? So this thing around now Americanizing them
0: firsthand. Well, I, I know we're at time. Um, I, I appreciate your time. Uh, This was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about charters, uh, but uh, maybe another time. So um, any, uh, any last comments uh, that you want to throw in here where maybe folks can find more information about you
1: or any projects you're working on? Definitely. I would, again, thanks so much for having me on and for folks who are looking uh, for other stuff that I'm doing, I'm kind of the Luddite of this new digital age. So I don't have any kind of Facebook presence or uh, Twitter or um, any type of social media. So the best way for folks to contact me is my email. And my email is M like Mary, F like Frank, S like Steve, 8837 at com. And for everybody Uh, who's wondering what that is. Yes, MFS is a curse word. And 8837 is the address of the house that I grew up in. So the best way for me to remember my email is to curse and remember my address. So that's the best way for folks to get at me. And I would say, um, look out for folks um, in on the West Coast where you all are, who are in the people's education movement, we have a chapter here in Chicago, but they've been doing some really uh, interesting work. And then where you are in Portland, there's the Northwest, Northwest Educators for Social Justice. I got a chance to speak out there uh, a couple years ago, so definitely for for your listeners to check them out. Um, and again, man, thank you for doing the really good critical work because in many cases we are not asking those critical questions, and in this kind of age of punditry. We have to have a space where we can have internal criticism and uh, an external criticism and then using that to sharpen our analysis because we are working for justice. And for all your K-12 folks uh, who are teaching, it's, it's tough right now, but please understand and know that there are people who understand what you're going through and there are people who are supporting you. And it's really a time to operate with some grace and understanding at every level. So thanks so much for uh, having me, truly appreciate it.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Well, David Stovall, thanks so much for your time. I hope you enjoyed that. So as I thought about this postscript, I considered saying more. I'm not sure that what you're about to hear is needed. To follow up on the question about Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, for a variety of reasons, I just don't think I'm capable of providing the insight that Dr. Stovall is able to. Glenn and John are prominent Black academics. They are both highly respected. And as I alluded to in the framing of that question, I believe it's critical to entertain all voices and perspectives. So I feel obligated to follow their work, to listen to what they have to say. But I'd be lying if I said that I agree with most of what they say. It's hard for me to reconcile their perspectives with the things that I've read things I've listened to, and the things that i personally experienced. And I wanted to hear Dave's thoughts on this topic. You know, some might argue that I don't believe it's okay for a white man to criticize the opinions of a black man. I don't agree with this, and I find it to be a deeply flawed and lazy position to take, and I have no interest in discussing that more. I'm not sure that any of that was particularly helpful, but I did feel compelled to share because I am sensitive to the appearance of being critical of John and Glenn without their opportunity to respond to those criticisms. But uh, I also felt that it was important to ask the question uh, for myself and for others. Thanks again for listening.